Well, it's a joy to be with you. Thank you uh, to Paul for his welcome. I, I do need to apologize to any students here, though, because he did just say he also speaks to grown-ups. Uh, so if you don't consider yourself regarded as a grown-up by Paul, I'm sorry. Uh, but it's good to be here uh, back in Edinburgh again. Uh, my wife would love to be here as well. Uh, she's uh, back where we live in, in Leicester today. Uh, she would especially love to be here because she's from Scotland and she used to live in Edinburgh uh, and she loves the city. Uh, and also because she's Scottish, I also think she is looking forward to the Rugby World Cup considerably more than I am at the moment, uh, but we won't mention the rugby. Uh, and it was great to hear uh, Jamie and Phil's story, wasn't it, uh, just a, a few minutes ago. Um, I was sitting with Jamie just in the prayer meeting before the service started, and I thought, he's getting baptized. Maybe he's a bit nervous. And I said, are you nervous? He says, no. And he clearly wasn't. So I think, uh, Paul, you better watch out. Um, and as well as getting a good view up here, you get to hear you singing. That was wonderful. Uh, you get a great, uh, great sense of everyone singing, so that was fantastic. Now... I used to work for a church down on the south coast of England, and I had a habit when speaking at baptism services of picking passages that had some um, unplanned connection with uh, the people getting baptized. And there was one Sunday, I didn't know who was getting baptized, and I was preaching on this passage. And I thought, well, I don't think the people getting baptized are particularly wealthy, so I'm not sure there's any link. And the guy afterwards came up to me, uh, well, I, I, didn't, I heard before that, he got introduced as he was being baptized as Richard Young. So the rich young ruler was obviously a very appropriate passage to look at. Now, before we dive into that passage, I want us to think for a few minutes actually about the subject of happiness. Uh, many people would say, wouldn't they, that what they really want in life is to be happy. Or they might say that as long as you're happy, that's all that really matters. But what is happiness and where do we find it? Uh, now, you might say it's a bit strange uh, for me to be speaking about happiness. Uh, I am a Brit, uh, like many of you, and uh, Brits are not particularly known for their happiness, are they? Uh, we're good at keeping calm and carrying on, uh, but exuding happiness, uh, perhaps that's, well, apparently, according to the surveys, it's the Nordic countries that seem to come highest on the happiness charts. Uh, there was an American author called Eric Wiener, and he wrote a book, actually, called The Geography of Bliss. And his aim was not to find out what made people happy, but where people were happy. And he was being interviewed in a British newspaper um, after he wrote the book. Um, and he was explaining why he had explained in the book that the Brits are some of the least happy people in the world. He said this, I feel sorry for the Brits. The Brits don't merely enjoy misery, they get off on it. In Britain, the happy are few and suspect. Britain is a great place for grumps, and most Brits, I suspect, derive a perverse pleasure from their grumpiness. Uh, but then he goes on, he says, there is one place that comes in for particular criticism. Slough, he proclaimed, is a treasure trove of unhappiness buried beneath a copious layer of gloom. The colors range from deeper to lighter shades of gray, and the people seem gray too, and slightly disheveled. I probably shouldn't say that we used to live in a slough postcodes, uh, but, uh, but maybe the Brits are not known for being happy, and perhaps maybe you don't ex think of religious people as being so happy. I, I was struck by what Phil said, that he was surprised by how people were smiling uh, when he came to, to the church. And perhaps that isn't what we expect. We, we think of people who are religious as people who are maybe a bit dour. 
But where do we find happiness? It's actually harder to find than we might think. Uh, There was a psychologist called Oliver James, and he wrote a book called Affluenza. Not influenza, uh, but a deliberate play on the, the term. And he says, actually, lots of people living in the West are suffering from what he calls affluenza. The disease, the mental disease that thinks that increasing our affluence will also increase our happiness. And actually, he finds beyond a certain point, it has the opposite effect. The more we have, it seems the less happy we are, counter to what we might think. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, another psychologist, in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, says that changing our circumstances doesn't seem to bring us happiness either, not in the long term. We think, oh, if only I could do this, go there, or change my situation, then I would be happy. Uh, In his book, he looks at two different groups of people, people who have a sudden downturn in their circumstances, like an accident that causes serious physical disabilities, and people who have a sudden upturn in their circumstances, like people who win the lottery. And he says, those who go through a a disaster or an accident in the short term experience great sadness. And of course, those who have an upturn in their circumstances in the short term experience for a while happiness. But he says in the long term, often their rate of happiness returns to where it was before. Changing our circumstances, he says, doesn't seem to in the long term bring us happiness. Uh, Talban Shahar um, was uh, one of the most popular lecturers at Harvard University uh, because he lectured on happiness. Who wouldn't want to go to a lecture uh, to discover happiness? And he also read a book called Happier uh, based on his lectures. And he says there are two mistakes that many people make when it comes to looking for happiness. He says the first is the hedonist route to happiness, just doing whatever makes me most happy in the moment. And we can see that that's often... um, misguided and unhelpful. But then he says there's the rat race view of happiness, the view that says I'll delay my happiness because in the future, once I've got this or that or achieved something, then I'll be happy. But he says but what often happens is that when people get what they've spent their lives living for, they're still not happy. Jim Carrey, the successful actor, put it this way. He says, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of So, he said, they can know it's not the answer. So happiness is not as easy to find as we might think, is it? So perhaps one of the problems is that making happiness our goal, our ultimate aim in life, is a mistake. Yuval Noah Harari uh, is an author and thinker, and in his book, Sapiens, looking at his idea of the history of the human race, Um, he touches on this desire that human beings have for happiness. And he says, uh, with tongue firmly in cheek, this. He says, money, social status, plastic surgery, and beautiful houses, powerful positions, none of these will bring you happiness. And then he goes on, he says, lasting happiness only comes from serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin. In other words, if you want to be happy, take drugs. But it does beg a question, doesn't it? If happiness, the emotion, can be achieved simply by popping a tablet, is that really what we want in life? Or is that too superficial? Is it something deeper, bigger, longer-lasting that we want? And if you're in doubt that 
that life has to be more than simply the search for personal happiness. Think of the stories and the films that you like the most. Most of them involve people who actually denied themselves happiness of some degree to do something bigger. I mean, if happiness, personal happiness, was the ultimate goal, how would Lord of the Rings have gone? Well, Frodo would have never gone to Mordor, would he? He'd have stayed in the Shire, enjoying his food. Uh, would the children have gone to confront the White Witch? No, they would have gone back through the wardrobe to England, where it was safe. Would Luke Skywalker have left his island hideaway? Would Batman have gone back to Gotham City? All of these characters are lauded for the fact that they denied themselves personal happiness for some greater goal. So maybe happiness is not the ultimate aim. Interesting observation on this uh, that some have made is that the parts of the world that seem to struggle with the question of suffering the most are not actually the parts of the world where people, relatively speaking, suffer the most. In my travels, I've found that people seem to find suffering an emotional problem greater in the West, where, relatively speaking, compared to other parts of the world, we suffer less. And perhaps that's because in our culture, we've made happiness, my happiness, the ultimate aim. And of course, if that is the case, suffering will always be a barrier to it. But if you had a bigger goal or purpose in life, perhaps suffering could even have a redemptive purpose in achieving it. Well, I want us to look at this story um, that we've had read to us from Mark chapter 10. So you might want to, to turn there again, because this is a guy who, according to what we might assume, should be happy. Uh, he's sometimes called, as we mentioned, the rich young ruler, uh, because we know from this account of this encounter and the other two accounts of it in the other two gospels where it's mentioned that there are three things about him he's rich uh, he's young and he's powerful he holds a position of influence in his local community and you would think wouldn't you that that's everything someone would want uh, now many people will have one or two of those three things at any one time uh, you might have youth uh, but you probably don't have wealth and one day you might have accumulated wealth, but you probably won't have your youth anymore to enjoy it. But this guy has youth, and he has wealth, and he has position and influence. He's ticked all the boxes. And yet we find him coming to Jesus. And he's not the kind of person we might think would be interested in Jesus, is he? We think maybe it would be old people rather than young people, or poor people rather than rich people or outcasts rather than the influential. And yet, perhaps like Jim Carrey, this guy has got everything he ever wanted, and he's realized it's not the answer. That all of his wealth and youth and power don't really meet that deeper need that he has in his heart. There is something missing. Chris Borman, the successful British cyclist, put it this way, Reflecting on his life and his career, he said, your entire life is wrapped up in getting this one thing, a gold medal. You believe this one thing is the answer. And once you've got this one thing, you tell yourself you'll be satisfied. The lucky ones get there and find that it isn't the answer. And then they go looking in the right places for satisfaction and happiness because it's not wrapped up in a gold medal. And maybe this guy has realized, actually, the things that he thought would make him happy 
have not succeeded. And so he comes to Jesus. And what does he do? Well, he asks a question and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if it's strange that he's interested in Jesus, it seems even more strange, doesn't it, that he's interested in eternal life? Because we assume that eternal life is that thing that happens when you die, and this guy is young. He's got a lot of living, as far as we know, to do before he dies. So why is he worried about eternal life? Well, actually, according to Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels, eternal life is not just something that happens when you die. It's actually something that can happen before we die. Because Jesus says that eternal life is not just a quantity of life, life that goes on forever beyond death, but it's also a quality of life. Indeed, he says that eternal life is having a relationship with the God who made you, a living, real connection with God. And that is what Jesus came to offer, eternal life, not just life beyond death, but life before death, life in connection with the God who made you. And this guy wants it because maybe he's come to realize that it's not what you have in life, but who you're with in life that really makes life worth living. And the ultimate relationship for which we are created is to be connected to God. And unless we have that, we're missing something of huge significance. Now, Jesus' response to his question is quite interesting, isn't it? Verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? Interestingly, Jesus often responds to questions with questions. It's a good idea in conversation to get people to think. And Jesus is clearly getting this guy to think. Now, why does he do that? Well, go back to this rich man's question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the assumption behind that question. The assumption is there is something you can do to get eternal life, right? Uh, that if you are good enough, if you work hard enough, if you go to church long enough, you will get eternal life. And Jesus is asking this question to question that assumption because actually that's not the way, as we'll see, that we get it. So he says, why do you call me good? Now, in conversation sometimes, particularly with Muslim friends, they take this verse as an assumption that Jesus doesn't think that he is God. I think quite the opposite, actually. This rich young man recognizes that Jesus is good, and Jesus is trying to say, but do you realize what that really means, if I'm truly good? But it also means something else, and that is this. He is basically saying to this rich young man, you think eternal life is something you can be good enough to get, but the only person who's good enough to get it is God. In other words, your application to join the Trinity has just been revoked. <laughs> You're not good enough, as he goes on to show. And then he lists the commandments, verse uh, 18 and beyond. He says, um, verse 19, sorry, he says, You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, and so on. Uh, some of the Ten Commandments, although interestingly, not all of them, as we'll see. And this guy is fairly confident in his goodness, isn't he? Because in verse 20, he says, Teacher, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Surely I'm good enough. And then Jesus says in verse 21, One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. 
Now, what is Jesus getting at there? Is he saying the qualification to become a Christian for everybody is that they have to sell everything they have and give it away? I don't think that is the case for, for at least two reasons. Firstly, there are some people who don't have much to give away in the first place. So it would be easy, wouldn't it? Uh, I spend lots of time talking to students, and they don't own anything, do they? You know, it's all owned by the bank. They've got to spend the rest of their life paying it back. But secondly, if this was true, then in theory, there'd be someone in the world that could never become a Christian, because they would have everything that everyone else had given away. <laughs> so, so I don't think this is a universal principle that Jesus is saying, this is how anyone becomes a Christian, but I think he's doing something deeper. He's basically saying to this guy, What's most important in your life? Is it eternal life and being connected to the God who made you? Or is it your money? And by giving him this challenge, he forces him to face up to the choice that he has to make. Tragically, as you see in verse 22, for him it's his money, isn't it? You see, when Jesus listed the, the commandments from the Ten Commandments, he didn't list them all, did he? He listed the ones that relate to how we treat other people, but he didn't list the ones that relate how we treat to God. And actually, this guy has fallen at the first hurdle because his God isn't God, it's, it's his money. He kind of wants eternal life, but the most important thing in his life is still his wealth. And it's so tragic, isn't it? Because in verse 22, how does he leave? Delighted and happy because he's held on to his money? No, he's sad. He knows that his wealth, his position, and everything else cannot satisfy, and yet somehow he can't give it up. Now, why is this challenging? It's challenging because I think sometimes people treat religion and spirituality a little bit like air conditioning. You know, air conditioning in Scotland, or indeed anywhere in the British Isles, is not exactly essential, is it? There might be a couple of days every five years when we would need to turn it on. Uh, and then, you know, we will talk about that heat wave for the next five years. But, but we don't really need it. It's kind of something, like in your car, that makes life a bit more pleasant occasionally. And people think of God like that. I'll kind of tack on a bit of spirituality into my life. If I'm feeling a bit down, that will help, perhaps. But Jesus says, actually, having a relationship with God is not like tacking some air conditioning into your car. It's like replacing the engine. It's more fundamental. It requires a radical reorientation of the way that we live our lives. If we are to discover the, the life, satisfaction, and joy of Jesus... It comes from when our lives are turned upside down by Jesus. Not by adding a little bit of religion on the sides, but living fundamentally for a completely different God, for God, rather than anything or anyone else. Now the question is, how would anyone ever come to a position of doing that? Why would we ever come to a position of considering that, that Jesus is worth more than anything and everything else that we have in life? Why would you do that? Well, this story is, is sometimes called, as we mentioned, the story of the rich young ruler. 
But actually, you could call it the story of the rich young rulers, plural. Because in some ways, Jesus, the man speaking here, is also a rich young ruler. He was rich, not materially, but actually, as God, he owned everything. He was young, in his 30s. A ruler? Well, the Bible says that he was the king, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who rules everything. He has ultimate power. And yet, here's the interesting thing. The first rich young ruler won't give up his relative wealth to get the thing of ultimate value, Jesus. And yet, if you keep reading the story, you'll discover the other rich young ruler, Jesus. He literally gives up everything. He gives up heaven, he gives up his riches, he gives up his life, and he dies on a cross. And on the cross, he gives up everything for us, so that we could have eternal life, so that we who don't deserve it, who could never earn it, could be connected, reconnected to God, to be forgiven. Jesus gives up everything he has so that we could get what we don't deserve. And here's the thing, to the degree to which you start to understand that, you also start to realize that Jesus is worth more than everything. When you see that Jesus is the one who gave up everything for you, you start to think, actually, he would be worth everything because he gave up everything for me. But how do we respond to this? The story is a sad one, isn't it? Because this guy leaves sad. But I guess the question this morning is how are we going to leave from Charlotte Chapel? How are we going to respond to, to Jesus? And there are different responses, aren't there? We could walk away like this guy, rejecting the offer of Jesus and rejecting the eternal life that he wants to give to us. And because eternal life is a relationship, you have that freedom because a relationship cannot be forced or imposed. It has to be chosen. And so Jesus allows this man to walk away sad, despite the fact that he loves him, despite the fact that he longs for him to have what he really needs, he allows him to walk away. But before you walk away, I guess my challenge will be this. Firstly, do you know what you're rejecting? Have you really looked at who Jesus is? So often people have a perception of religion or Christianity, which is quite different to to what it's really all about. And look, if, I, if my understanding of the Christian faith was based upon my religious education lessons at school or what I gained of Christianity by watching the BBC, I certainly wouldn't be here this morning. But there is a whole lot more to it that perhaps you haven't seen. Uh, so why not, um, at the end of the service, uh, take one of these books, uh, they're just called Mark, they're from... Uh, the Bible, this encounter, is, is, is written in there according to, uh, along with the rest of, of this gospel. Why not take that and read it for yourself if you've never done that as an adult? And just find out what it's really about. Uh, although a little kind of health warning, I know a number of people who've done that as a real skeptic, and their skepticism has been severely challenged simply by reading some of the evidence for themselves. And also let me say, if you're going to walk away from it, and if you're going to reject it, what have you got instead? What is it that you're going to live for? 
What is it that's going to be at the foundation and the center of your life? And is it going to hold up? Is it going to deliver? Can it give you what Jesus wants to offer you? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not wanting to walk away from it, but maybe you're kind of intrigued by what you've heard. Uh, You're kind of weighing it up and you want to think about it more because this is a big commitment, isn't it, as we've seen? This is not just a small addition into our lives. And so maybe what you need to do is think about it more seriously. One of the things that the church offers here is a course called Christianity Explored. And the opportunity to sit down with someone, to go through this book, to, to discuss it together and to look at what it would mean to follow Jesus. Um, if you want to, to find out about that, apparently you go to the Connect Corner, which is, yeah. Um, so go down there at the end of the service, find out. But maybe there are some here this morning, and maybe this isn't the first time you've thought about this, and you are really weighing it up. You wouldn't yet consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're weighing it up. But maybe for you it feels a bit scary. Because it is a big commitment, isn't it? And there is something kind of counterintuitive about the Christian life. C.S. Lewis, who wrote those Narnia stories that I referred to earlier, um, became a Christian later in life. And for a while, he was convinced that Christianity was true intellectually. He just didn't want to become a Christian because he was fearful of what it would mean for him. He kind of felt that it would be the end of life rather than the beginning of life. And eventually, one night after a conversation with his friends, J.R.R. Tolkien, he admitted that it must be true and that he was going to acknowledge to God what he now knew. And he wrote this in one of his books. He says, you must picture me alone in that room at Maudling that night, feeling Whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. And in Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Now, that quote comes from one of his books, and it was a book called Surprised by Joy. That title has a double meaning, by the way, partly because his wife, who he met later in life as well, was called Joy, and she was surprising, but also because when he actually acknowledged that God was God, when he decided to follow Jesus, he was surprised by the joy that he discovered He felt this was the end, and yet it was the beginning. He felt this was giving up on life, and yet, as he was to discover, it was finding real life. Elsewhere, Jesus said, those who want to save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their lives will find it. So if following Jesus feels big, it's because it is. And if it feels scary, as if somehow we're giving up on life, in one sense it is, but But actually, Jesus says, what we get is so much better, is so much bigger, and lasts for so much longer, that it's worth it. It is worth everything. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've been weighing it up for a while, and I just want to say, look, I can't force you to follow Jesus, but I really want to to commend to you that 
that Jesus is worth following. As our friends are going to show in a minute by being baptized. He's worth it. And maybe this morning, like C.S. Lewis did all those years ago, you need to acknowledge that. So I'm going to finish uh, this part of the service just with a short prayer. And this might be a prayer that would be helpful for some people to echo as a way of saying to God, firstly, that we're sorry for the way that we've lived without him. Secondly, that we're thankful for what Jesus has done, giving up everything for us. And thirdly, simply saying, please, God, will you give me what I could never earn, but you want to give me as a gift, this relationship with you. And maybe for some people, you would just want to echo that in your heart this morning as I pray. Let's just have a moment of quiet. And if that is what you would like to do, what you maybe feel that you need to do this morning, then you could just echo this prayer now. Lord God, I'm sorry for the way that I've lived my life without you. I'm sorry for the things that I've done that have hurt you and hurt others. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to give up everything for me so that I could be forgiven. Thank you that you gave up your life on the cross so that I could have life with you. Please, would you give me now what I could never earn? Give me that relationship with you that you promise and help me to live from this moment onwards with you at the center of my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And just to say, if you did pray that prayer this morning, uh, then it'd be great to connect with you as well. Maybe tell someone that invited you or brought you today, uh, or if not, you know where to go after the service, and we'd love to chat with you as well.